0: Tonight on Huckabee, Texas Congressman Ronnie Jackson. From the coal mine to the courtroom, Rod Adams. Cowboy comedian, William Lee Martin. 60s pop hit maker, Brian Hyland. That's Dre Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith filbury And...
1: Welcome, everybody. We are very happy to have you with us. I don't know if you've been keeping up with things, but this past week, 17 members of Congress got arrested for going beyond their peaceful protest of the Supreme Court's returning the Sanctity of Life issue back to the states. So they decided to make utter spectacles of themselves by blocking traffic, and after three warnings, they were arrested. Now, of course, the biggest spectacle in Congress was there to be arrested, and in the spirit of authenticity, pretended to be handcuffed by walking with her hands behind her back. I'm referring, of course, to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who for reasons beyond explanation was wearing a heavy wool coat in 100 degree DC heat. (laughs) That alone ought to be enough to confirm that she ain't right, okay? (laughs) when a coat, when it's 100 degrees. So there she struts, not so much proud that she blocked traffic and made a fool of herself, play acting, being handcuffed, but that once again, she found a way to get on TV. In fact, my crack researchers at the Huckabee School of you better believe I'm right, have discovered that the most dangerous actions in America are hang gliding off a 1,000 foot cliff with an umbrella from Dollar General, (laughs) telling a Southerner that you hate Elvis, Jesus, Leonard, Skinner, and Sweet Tea, (laughs) and getting between AOC and a TV camera. Those are dangerous things and all will likely result in death. Camera-addicted AOC only pretended to have handcuffs. Too bad they didn't give her some real ones to wear. (laughs) But you know who did get put in real handcuffs? Peter Navarro, former trade director at the Trump White House. Not only did he get put in handcuffs and frog-marched across the federal courthouse lawn, he was put in jail, strip-searched, and put in leg irons. And he didn't even block traffic. Now, what he's accused of is a misdemeanor charge of contempt of Congress, because he refused to become a stage prop in Nancy Pelosi's little drama called The January Six Committee, run in part by Nancy's handpicked and pet Republican dolt, Liz Cheney. And you know, Liz needs to get all the attention she can, cause it's really likely that Wyoming voters have had enough of her petulant political pouting and will retire her from Congress this year. Peter Navarro, who in fact was arrested at the door of the airplane that he was boarding on his way to Nashville to be a guest on this show, he wasn't protesting to be seen and heard. He rightly believes that Congress overstepped its authority by trying to force members of the president's staff to reveal conversations that have always been considered protected under executive privilege. And as for the charge of contempt of Congress, wow. I guess I'm subject to arrest for that because with Pelosi in charge, I confess, I got a whole lot of contempt for a Congress who has destroyed the basic tenets of American constitutional jurisprudence by conducting a TV show that they call a hearing despite not allowing any questions or viewpoints that aren't carefully scripted and placed on their little teleprompter. They shred the constitution by conducting this little sham of a show trial by allowing wild hearsay and breathlessly gasping at nutty allegations, one of which include a story that President Trump grabbed the steering wheel from the back seat of the vehicle in which he was riding. Despite the fact that the Secret Service You know, the people who were actually in the vehicle, they said it never happened. So while AOC, anti-Semitic congressional kook Ilhan Omar, and other members of the Keystone Congress clown car (laughs) pretended to be shackled, it was a 69-year-old cancer patient grandmother who was ordered placed in prison for the crime of, wait for it, parading in the Capitol on January 6th. Of twenty twenty-one.
2: Yes, we have arrived at the Dublin Federal Prison for Women. We're here at Camham Hill.
3: Mom, how do you feel? You're here. You're, uh, scared to death. I'm I'm frightened, but I know God's with me. I just gotta take it five minutes at a time, one day at a time. Hmm.
1: She didn't engage in any violence. She didn't strike or disrespect a police officer. She didn't break into a congressional office. She was just there. And the judge sent her to time in prison. Meanwhile, the staff of Stephen Colbert's very unfunny, The Hate Show, or I think they call it The Late Show, but they should call it The Hate Show. They really did wander around inside Capitol office buildings despite repeatedly being told to leave. And they were hit with not so much as a $10 fine. Totally let off the hook. You know, if it weren't for the double standards of justice at Joe Biden and Merrick Garland's Department of Justice, there wouldn't be any standards at all. But Americans can only take so much of the corruption, abuse of power, and political strong-arming of citizens using our own tax money to do it to us. And the Day of Reckoning needs to start in November of this year. President Joe Biden tested positive for COVID 19 this week, but that's not the only health issue that has some people concerned. Former White House physician, now Congressman Ronnie Jackson, says the president's mental decline is so bad that he should resign. Now he should resign for the good of the country. Would you please welcome to the show from the great state of Texas, Congressman and author of the new book, Holding the Line, Congressman Ronnie Jackson. Well, when we uh, originally had you scheduled to come talk about your new book, Holding the Line, we did not realize uh, all the medical things that would be going on with Joe Biden this week. Um, he's come down with COVID. They say the Oops. symptoms are mild, right. and we're glad of that. But we were told by President Biden and others that this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That's right. He's been vaccinated twice and boosted twice. So somebody hadn't been telling us quite the whole fact about that we still can
4: get COVID. No, I think we've been mis- misled a bunch on this. I think so much of this has just revolved around politics and, and, and what's really helped the Democrats out. I mean, you know, honestly, my opinion is that, uh, you know, I don't think he would be president right now if it hadn't been for COVID and the unsolicited mail-in ballots that were sent all over the country. I think, uh, yeah. yeah. Do you, I mean, I, I
1: wanna make sure that our audience understands, you worked in the Bush White House, the Obama White House. You were the uh, primary White House physician for President Obama and then President Trump. That's right. Your history is not one of politics. It's one of medicine. And that's the most highly trusted position in the country in medicine is being the personal physician to the President of the United States, an extraordinary uh, position to be placed in. And you serve three presidents. When you were with President Trump, People constantly question his cognitive ability. Mm-hmm. you in
4: fact gave him a cognitive mm-hmm. test. How did it that turn out he, he He scored thirty out of thirty a perfect score, and I knew he would i wouldn't have I probably wouldn't have approached him with it if i hadn't have known he would do well and, and I knew he would because to be honest with you, you know him, he has a better memory than I do and I, and, it's, and it's a lot of its memory and whatnot and so i I knew for sure he was going to do that the the far left the uh, uh, the elite academic uh, you know uh, in, in academic medicine in Stanford and Harvard and Yale and the the the, uh, the, the liberals in the in the mainstream media they were demanding that you know that he have a physical and a, and a, and a cognitive assessment because you know, there's just another no way to try to get rid of him they tried everything they could since before he was even sworn in as president and this was their last attempt and so I just approached him about it one day and I said hey uh, you know we're about to do your physical exam there's one other thing we could do we could do this cognitive test uh, and he said you know and, and take some of this you know uh-huh. just get it off the <laughs> table and uh, he said well what you know, what's the downside? I said, well, the downside is if you don't do very well, we're still going to have to kind of, you know, we're going to have to let people know. And yeah. he, he wasn't concerned about it neither was I. And he said, let's do it. We did it and we didn't tell anybody. And and, and uh, your daughter was a part mm-hmm. of this. You know, we we kept it tight yeah. all the way to the end. And then I walked out in that press briefing room and Sarah told me I was going to be out there for 10 minutes or less. And I was out there for an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, they
1: hammered you. They I remember you. the day I saw the press conference.
4: But we went out there and Sanjay Gupta and medical correspondents from MSNBC, They were that place was packed and they, they were there as assassins to take me down and to undermine my report of the president. I gave them the facts. I gave them tons of objective data. I stood up there and answered every single question they had for an hour and 20 minutes and they, they started asking the most ridiculous questions, so much so that the rest of the press criticized the White House press corps saying they made themselves look foolish with the questions they were asking. After that, all of that stuff was off the table. Nobody talked about it at all anymore. But as far as I'm concerned, this is my point now: is that they demanded that he have a cognitive test, and not because he did anything that was that was worrisome from a cognitive standpoint. It was because they didn't like his style, they didn't like his personality, right? And but now we have a president that actually has obvious cognitive disability, uh, you know, and he's supposed to be the head of state and. and and our commander in chief. And and where are are these people at now? It's crickets. They don't say anything. And and, and you know, Congressman, that's what I wanted to to point
1: out was that you had administered this test. So when you call for a test like this to be Mm -hmm. given to Joe Biden, you're not doing it from a standpoint of, hey, I wouldn't dare let Trump have Mm -hmm. that. You put President Trump through that. You understand what would be revealed from it. And it's a medical decision on your part to say...
4: Gosh, we ought to do the same thing with Joe Biden. It is, you know, I'm worried about our country. I'm worried about, it's a national security issue for us right now. You can see what's happening overseas. He's supposed to go over there and he's supposed to project strength and inspire confidence in our allies and keep our adversaries at bay. Our adversaries do not fear us right now. They see the Joe Biden administration as a window of opportunity to get away with anything they can. And I'm talking about China, Russia, Iran. And, you know, and so I'm worried. I know what it takes physically and mentally to do that job. It's very demanding and Mm. I know, for a fact that he cannot do that job because I can watch him on TV. You don't have to be a physician to see what's going on. I tell people all the time, he's had, he's he's had gas for 40 years, right? We got 40 years of tape of this man with the gaff. This is different. He's confused. He shuffles when he walks. He slurs his speech. He's lost. Uh, he has a short temper. He's prone to anger, angry outbursts. These are all things that a lot of us have seen in in some of our own family members when they start having age-related cognitive issues.
1: And and he shakes hands with ghosts. I mean, that's another thing that he does. Congressman, stay with us. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have more with Congressman Ronnie Jackson, the author of this book, Holding the Line. Don't go away.
0: Still to come, comedian William Lee Martin, then music from the legendary Brian Hyland. That's tonight on Huckabee. and sign up for his free newsletter and follow at on Twitter.
1: And welcome back. Now, we've been talking with Congressman Ronnie Jackson from Texas. He served as the White House doctor for performance presidents Bush, Obama, and Trump. And uh, I think some pretty unique insights into the current administration. And, And Congressman, you're also admiral, Uh, You hold a a variety of titles, but I do want to go back to the fact that having witnessed three different presidential administrations and personally working with three presidents, I, I just think it's important. What you see in President Biden is not what you saw in
4: Bush, Obama or Trump. I think it's just it's, it's rogue in the White House right now. I think that a lot of the Obama folks came back into the White House uh, right after uh, he was in there. I think they saw that as an opportunity. And now I think they're all just independently making decisions, funneling it you know, through, uh, through uh, the, the Oval Office. And that's why our economy is a disaster right now. That's why gas prices are the way they are. That's why our Southern border's the way it is. That's why there's crime in our big cities. That's why we have no respect overseas right now. And we have you know this national security issue that we deal with all the time. Uh, and uh, so I, uh, I just, I'm very concerned about our country right now. That's why I, that's why I ran for office. You, you were
1: born and raised in West Texas. Yep. At one point, before you went to medical school, you worked in the oil fields out in West Texas. That's right. So when you see Joe Biden going over to Saudi Arabia with a gas can, asking for five gallons, I'm sure you're yep. probably thinking, dude, you ought to go to West Texas. We got a plenty of oil right here at home. You don't have to go and bow down to the Saudi uh, crown prince.
4: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, that, that's embarrassing. That's really That really is embarrassing. And, uh, you know, I just don't understand this administration a lot of the times because so much of what they do doesn't seem to be in anyone's best interest. Not their best interest either. Yeah. Not the best interest of their family. So, you know, but I think that they're being driven by the far left for whatever reason. Omar, Tlaib, Presley, AOC, Cori Bush, Nancy Pelosi, the, these far left people. Nancy Pelosi just carries their water for them, but these people really, they do have a <laughs> communist Marxist ideology. I mean, you know, they they, they think that the best way to convert to make this country what they want it what they want it to be, to rebuild it in their Marxist image, is to just burn it to the ground. Yeah. And, and you could do it over a period of 40 years if you made small policy changes, or you could do what they're doing, you could just burn it to the ground, and that's what they're doing right now. And they don't care who gets hurt in the process. And we have to stop it. And we've been working hard in the minority, because we, we don't have the House, we don't have the Senate, we don't have the White House, but we've been working extremely hard. And the best the, the the one thing that we've done that's made a difference is to come on TV, to get on the radio, to do those things, to point out some of the stuff that's going on and put pressure on some of the moderate Democrats like Joe Manchin from his constituents yeah. and stop some of this. That's really all we've got at our disposal right now. But in January, we're going to take the House back, and we will have the House of Representatives in January. I, hope
1: I this sure is- hope so. One of the things that I, I think makes your book pretty significant called Holding the Line, I mean, you, you have a, an amazing life story. I, I mentioned the fact you started out in the oil fields of West Texas. You went to Texas A&M. But, I mean, to go your trajectory... White House physician, now member of Congress. Uh, There just aren't many people that have created the resume like you have. What was it deep inside of you that you learned as a kid in West Texas that has proven to be a part of making you tick today?
4: I think first and foremost, you know, just the, uh, the the Christian conservative values that were instilled in me early on in life. I think those really, that, that, you know, no matter what happens to you in life and no matter when you, you know, at times you stray, you know, you, you get off the path that you're supposed to be on, but that will always bring you back to where you need to be, right? And I think that's important. Uh, also, the work ethic. My, I mean, my parents instilled an incredible work ethic in me, and my folks taught me to always take advantage of every opportunity I've got, you know, and, and to treat everything as an opportunity. Even if it doesn't look like an opportunity at the time, it's not exactly what you wanted. Approach it as, as, as it's a great opportunity and, and you will always end up, uh, it will lead to something else. And, and like nine times out of 10, you end up being really proud that you did, you know, something that you thought wasn't going to be in your best interest. But I've just tried to abide by that. I've tried to always smile and always have a good attitude. And when I'm not smiling on the inside, I'm smiling on the outside. Uh, so I try to do that. And I, th- I just think that's been part of it. But I, I, I never planned on going to the politics, ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I was in the Navy for 25 years. I, I was with the Naval Special Forces in Warfare. I was with the Marine Corps in Iraq. Then I ended up at the White House. I was going to retire after, uh, after the, end, at the end of the Obama administration. They talked me into coming back to Trump. I was going to retire after that. But I got so disgusted with what was going on in this country. And, I, and for the first time, it sounds cliche, but I was honestly worried about the future of my kids and my grandkids. Yeah. And I thought to myself, and I had a lot of job opportunities to make a lot more money than I was making on active duty. But I said, you know what? There's time for that later. I got to get in the fight and do something about what's going on, not talk about it, not complain about it, but do something about it. And that's why I ran for office.
1: And I'm glad you did, and we all are. We are a better country because you decided to give yourself to public service. So the book is called Holding the Line, and you can visit Huckabee.tv. We have links directly to the book so that you can learn how to get a copy. I hope you do. It's a great story. Uh, Congressman Ronnie Jackson is uh, telling his story. It's a great American story. And I want to throw a personal word. Of all the people that my daughter worked with at the White House, there was just no one she adored more and had more confidence in than this guy right here, Congressman Ronnie Jackson. She knows him to be the real deal. Well, somebody else who's a real deal is Keith Bilbrey, and he's keeping up with our show tonight. We might even let him tell us what we have coming up.
0: Well, coming up, cowboy comedian, William Lee Martin-Bree the funny. Later, political strategist Dick Morris on Huckabee.
1: You know, one of the reasons that you should sign up to get free tickets to come to the show and be in our theater when we tape it is because I know how much you enjoy the music of Trey Corley and the Music City Connection on TV. But if you're here in the theater, uh, you get a whole lot more of it. And this crowd loves, like we do, Trey Corley and the Music City Connection. Let's give them a big hand. Tonight's comedian is back for his second appearance. We must have liked him because we've invited him back. Well, he's performed all over America, and his latest comedy special is called Standing in the Middle. It's streaming right now. He and his wife are the founders of the Cowboys Who Care Foundation. Would you please welcome back the hilarious stand up comedy of William Lee Martin?
5: Oh, thank you very much, everybody. Uh, Y'all do me a favor, clap for the band one more time for the band. It's so good to be back here again. You know, uh, the producers are just amazing. I was here uh, backstage, and they were like, hey, just remember, keep this show clean. And I go, cool, how clean? And they said, pretend your grandma's in the audience. And I went, cool, which grandma? I had two different grandmas, y'all. I had a grandma that went to church seven days out of the week, wear little white gloves, and then I have my granny, y'all. And my granny could outdrink anybody in this room. <laughs> she could outcuss a sailor, and she had a faded blue tattoo on her arm that I always thought said "mom," but from her perspective, just said "wow." <laughs> Tell you a little bit about myself. I am married, happily married. My wife is from Oklahoma, and I am from the great state of Texas. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. And uh, my dad still calls this a mixed marriage, y'all. He does. and uh, But uh, we, we have five beautiful kids. She came with two kids, two girls. I have two girls and a boy. And now we have four grandsons, y'all. Yeah, and everybody tells me, wait till you get a granddaughter. Hang on, did you miss the part? I have four daughters, so God owed me. God not only owes me, he owes my son. My son at one point was an only child. Now he has four sisters. Two mamas and four dogs that are all female. I came off the road, he's nine years old, y'all, just on the front stoop, just smoking a cigarette. Daddy, them witches be crazy. Only he didn't use witches, right? I told him, I said, Boy, you watch your language. He said, You think that's bad? You ought to hear what I'm thinking. My wife and I have a beautiful family. We really do, you know. And uh, uh, probably the hardest thing about our marriage was probably the pandemic, y'all. Because I'll be honest with you, my marriage is not built on me being home seven days out of the week. (laughs) We met when I was on the road, y'all. And that's the beauty of being on the road. If you're in that kind of relationship, you know you miss her and she misses you. And when you get home, woo. When they put us together every day of the week, seven days out of the week, 24 hours a day, there was no more woo. There was a whole lot of huh. And I've never been home long enough to get on my, ner- uh, my wife's nerves or vice versa, right? Like, like, my wife hates it if I ever use a cuss word, right? And I tell her, I said, baby, you think that's bad? You ought to hear what I'm thinking. For me, I I never realized until the pandemic how loud my wife chews, y'all. God bless her. Haka, 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 haka. You think you get better with soup? No. One day I snapped, Michelle, shut up. And y'all, like a boss, she went to the pantry and got out croutons and stared at me like we're in a prison movie and I'm about to get shanked in the yard. Haka, haka. But she had me working in the yard the entire pandemic, y'all. She truly did. She knows idle hands make the devil's work when it comes to her husband, right? And I admit that yard never looked as good as it did during the pandemic. It's amazing what that yard can look like with a full-time landscaper living on the property. <laughs> she made subtle hints on who was running that house because I'd be outside working on the house all day. And then she, I walk back in the house and she's watching some show on how to kill your husband and get away with it. She's like, what you doing in the house, boy? Uh, water break, boss. Okay, if you didn't get that reference, that's from Cool Hand Luke, okay? What we have here is a failure to communicate. And everybody who got that joke is old and has cable. I know, man. Uh, My wife is funny. You know, now I'm back out on the road and everything else. And I came home the other day, and she goes, you know, I know you make that little joke about me and everything else, but I watched an interesting documentary, and it said, Bill, if you truly want to hide a body, what you do is you dig down about nine or ten feet, see, and you put that body in there, and then you put four feet of dirt on that, and then you go kill you a big dog, see, and you put, yeah, you put the big dog on there, and then you put dirt on there, and then when the cadaver dog gets there they'll dig down to the dog and never find your body again (laughs) to which I said honey if you want me to do the dishes just say so (laughs) my wife and I believe in love till death do us part right and uh we were coming home from a funeral the other day and uh we were talking about what we wanted in our funeral you know as people do and everything and uh she said well baby I'm gonna give you permission At my funeral, if I go first, what I want you to do is I want you to have loud music, I want you to have everybody in bright, beautiful clothes, and you can even bring our margarita machine to the funeral. And I said, baby, I'm gonna need that in writing. Because if I show up to your funeral in a party bus, there will be an investigation. And if our dog died the same day, I will go to prison. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you.
1: Uh, <laughs> oh, great job, Bill. Thank you, guys. We're so excited to have you back. You, you talked about the pandemic. What have you been doing since the pandemic finally
5: ended? Well, you know, I, and I want to tell you straight off, I, I want to thank you. You know, you had me on in January about uh, 19 months ago. Yeah. And, you know, when you get shut down and your whole life's stream stop, You wonder if you're ever going to be able to do this again. And by you putting me on this show, we put it on Facebook. And Mm. and the bit that we did here the last time got a little, almost 7 million views. Wow. 7 million. That's pretty awesome. Now,
1: another big thing that's happened... You played the Grand Ole Opry this week, and you've been invited back to make a regular. You know, that doesn't happen to just everybody.
5: Well, that's what I hear. You know, yeah. I, I, uh, I was excited. I made my debut in March, and then last night I was there again. And both times I wasn't nervous at all, but after I got off that stage, I cried like a baby in the green room. It wow. Just that emotional. You know, my mom and dad both have asked, passed away, and uh, for them not to be there for that thing, it was just so emotional. You know? Well, I have to believe they were watching Amen. from
1: the best seats in the house, and they were looking down and said... Son, you finally made something out of yourself. Good for you. We're glad you came. Thank you. Very happy to have you. Now, if you want to see more of William Lee Martin, and I'm sure you do, you can also check out his latest special, Standing in the Middle, and learn more about Cowboys Who Care, which is a very special uh, effort that he and his wife do. Cowboys Who Care. How to find out about it? Real simple. Go to Huckabee.tv. We have links to all of it. Right now, Keith Bilbrey, he knows a little about the Grand Ole Opry. He was just the announcer there for 35 years. But he right now is riding herd on this show. He might tell us what's coming up next.
0: Well, speaking of throwing the ball, Mike talks politics next with political strategist Dick Morris and later the music of Brian Hyland on Huckabee.
1: Whether it's pandemics, wars, or natural disasters, Samaritan's Purse is committed to being on the ground to be a light in the very darkest places. And they're able to do this by the grace of God and by your generosity. You can help them continue God's work by going to the Samaritan's Purse website, or you can call them today and give a financial gift. Thank you, and God bless you for helping people who really, truly need it. Dick Morris is a best-selling author. He's a longtime political strategist who has served clients all the way from Bill Clinton to me. That's right. He worked in my early campaigns way back in the 90s. But he went on to counsel Donald Trump on his 2016 and 2020 campaigns, playing a key role in President Trump's surprise 2016 win. Dick says in a brand new book, Trump is going to be back in 2024. He says he's running He knows the strategy to win again. Which welcome to the show, author of The Return Trump's Big 2024 Comeback, my friend Dick Morris. Dick, good to have you here.
3: Good to be here. Good to be here. Now, Mike, uh, The Return was not my original title. What was it going to be? In the first draft, it was The Second Coming. (laughs) (laughs) But I figured that might be presumptuous. Yeah, somebody might have
1: taken that wrong, you think? Right. (laughs) <laughs> what made you first believe Donald Trump had potential to be elected president? Because the media no. just laughed
3: him off from the beginning. I have known Trump my entire life. My father was his lawyer. Ah, And uh, whenever I would have dinner at Mar-a-Lago, Trump would come over to the table and say, your dad was the best real estate lawyer I ever had. <laughs> and then because he's Trump, before he left, he said, he wasn't like you. He wasn't political. <laughs>
1: I can and, see uh, all of that conversation and, going
3: on. Well, I'll tell you, when I, I got cancer in 19, in 2016, uh, 17, right after the election. And um, I watched this from my bed. It was tongue cancer, which for a political pundit is equivalent to capital mm. punishment. <laughs> 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 but they did, the surgeons did a great job. And uh, I watched Trump do everything that Bill Clinton promised. And when I met with Trump and I said, I've written two State of the Unions for Clinton, and it's the same speech you gave, just his is in the future tense, yours was in the past tense. Hmm. He would say, I'm going to improve the schools. You did. He said, I'm going to seal the border. He actually built a bit of a border wall. Trump said, I'll finish it. Uh, And everything that Clinton tried to do, equalize incomes, raise incomes of the working class, you did. Uh, But I decided to go to work for Trump after I I recovered from radiation from my cancer. Because I I was frankly near death at two points. And uh, I decided that God had spared me for a purpose. And that purpose was to try to get Donald Trump re-elected. Well, it
1: didn't happen in 2020, but you believe that it will happen in 2024 He do. hasn't even
3: announced yet I so do. well, he hasn't announced yet but it's between him and his accountant as to how the rally expenses are and paid if for him. he announced before
1: the midterm elections, it would be kind of bad for him to preempt that too it might, might be
3: but um well, Trump preempts them by just <laughs> existing. <laughs> That's a good point yeah. Um, yeah. I believe that uh, Trump wanted me to write this book because he wanted me to put out and been very generous in endorsing it because he wanted me to write about how he'll win in 24 and how it'll be different from 20.
1: So tell and- us how it will, because there are a lot of people, even people that voted for Trump twice, 16 and 20, loved what he did, but they're worried that if he runs, the press will make it all about his personality, not about his policies. And it's going to just be a mess again. So how does he well, avoid that?
3: The big thing that bedeviled him was the voter fraud and the way the 2020 election turned out. And I believe that we have hit on a formula to end it. And I explain it in the book. I do not think there will be any fraud in 24. Hmm. Because the Supreme Court is about to rule in a case called Moore versus Harper. And it's a challenge to a reapportionment by the Republican Party of North Carolina. And the Republicans, the Supreme Court threw out the congressional map, the, legi- the legislature passed, and imposed one that helps the Democrats. And the Republicans are arguing that the Constitution, if you keep a copy on you, go get it out now and look at it. <laughs> Article 3, Section 4 says, the times, places, and manner of choosing congressmen and senators shall be determined by the state legislatures. Not the states, not the governors, not the courts, not the secretaries of state, the legislatures. It's called the Legislative Supremacy Clause. And the strict constructionists, who are now a majority of the court, say that's what the Constitution says. So there are now five states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina, that are swing states, in which the legislature is Republican and the governor is a Democrat. Hmm. And the legislature passed laws just like those enforced now in Arizona and Florida and Georgia, which really prohibit voter fraud. They, they ban drop boxes, they require photo ID, all kinds of stuff. But the governors have vetoed it in those five states. This court case, if we win it, which I think we will, because four judges have sided with us to hear the case, mm-hmm. Takes it completely out of the hands of the governors. And the legislature alone makes that determination. And it was absolutely brilliant to bring this state.
1: It is a fascinating insight because I don't know of anyone else who's talking about that. No. Nope. Uh, this is the book. It's called The Return. Dick Morris, who is the author uh, of a lot of best selling books, but this is his latest and it may be his greatest. Now, for our audience, you can pick up a copy of The Return anywhere books are sold. It's in stores. It's online right now. And be sure to head over to Huckabee.tv because that's where we make it easy. We have links on all the things, not only about the book, but all of the ways in which you can connect with Dick Morris and his regular columns and the commentaries that he makes on Newsmax and other places. Check out other books as well on those links. I think these folks liked you, Dick. I think they did. Right now,
0: Keith Bilbrey is going to tell us all about what we have coming up next on the show. Well, up next, we honor Disability Pride Month with author and attorney Ron Adams, And later, a classic hit from Brian Hyland on Huckabee. TV, and get your very own Made in the USA Huckabee mugs, t-shirts, and more.
1: My next guest was on track for a career in the NBA when a coal mining accident at the age of 19 left him quadriplegic. The story of how he overcame seemingly impossible obstacles to become a successful attorney is told in his inspiring memoir, Coal Mine to Courtroom. Would you please welcome W. Ron Adams. Welcome, Ron. Great having you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. July is Disability Pride Month in the country. It's kind of special for you in that uh, it's also the 32nd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yes. President Bush, George Bush uh, H.W. Bush actually signed that
2: uh, bill. Um, That's a big deal, wasn't it? Yes, before that, uh, so many of the courtrooms weren't accessible, I'd go to hearings and they'd have to bring the judges and everybody downstairs because they couldn't even, there was no access.
1: You know, I don't think most people really understand what uh, maybe a, a game changer, that the Disabilities Act was. And for some people, they said, oh, I'm gonna have to spend some money. But it really was the right thing to do because people with disabilities didn't ask for that. You certainly didn't ask for yours. No. So when this all first happened, you're 19 years old, you're a kid with big dreams.
2: Did you kind of think, my life's over? Well, I was, uh, the doctors were busy telling me that. Um, I'm very much about the good Lord and I had scriptures of healing put up all in my rehab room. Doctors thought I was crazy, so they had me psychiatrically evaluated. (laughs) And uh, that was the first time I'd ever heard that I could probably even go to law school if I wanted. So, um, and I still remember the first day that they told me, I was a, a week after I'd turned 20. I'd never be any better than I was right then couldn't raise my arms to feed myself. Uh, and it's tough being 20 years old and hearing your life's over. Yeah. So that night I went back to my room. I cried all night. And the next morning I woke up and I'm like, if crying will make me healed, I'll cry a uh, river. But since it didn't change anything, because that was my face and eyes hurt, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> crying anymore. And so I decided right then, every decision that occurs, you take the least worst option every time and you never look back.
1: You know, I think a lot of people get encouragement from your story because they look at their own lives and they're complaining, they're whining, they're saying, oh, woe me, I'm a victim. And then they see what you have had to overcome And they realize, you know, my life's
2: maybe not that bad after all. And Well, um, the only reason I wrote this book was I felt like the good Lord wanted me to write it because I really looked at me and it's like, why would anyone care? But I kept, as God does, he keeps pushing you along, even though, or dragging you maybe. Hmm. And (laughs) uh, finally, I sort of gave in to doing it, but... You know, one of the biggest things that happened was about 25 years after I'd been practicing, uh, I went through a financial collapse because after 9 11. And uh, I remember tears in my eyes, praying to the Lord, "Uh, why me? Why does this keep happening? And that's after a broken neck, a brain Mm -hmm. tumor, lots of problems. And it was like, I heard the Holy Spirit say, "Uh, it's not about me, it's about you. And that's like, I don't understand, everything's about you. And at that moment, I realized that the way you think affects the way you believe, and that affects the way you expect. And the talking, what comes out of your mouth is the first thing that leads you in the wrong direction. Mm. It is a powerful story. And I hope that people will
1: uh, get the book and and read because it's encouraging. Coal Mine to the Courtroom. It's available now. You're gonna find a link with it, along with all things that tell you about Ron Adams. All of that at Huckabee.tv. And uh, Ron, it is an honor to have you here and to celebrate the accomplishments that you have made in spite of overwhelming
2: odds. And we're grateful for that. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Keith Bilbrey, he is not shy in the least. And he is going to get
1: over there on that little podium of his and pound it away because he has something pretty big
0: to tell us about that's coming up. You better believe it. After the break, singer-songwriter Brian Hyland joins us to perform a classic hit right here on Huckabee. Next week, celebrate National Lasagna Day with Chef Adrian Calvo and phenomenal magic tricks by Nick Comus.
1: I'm pretty pumped about that, Keith. National Lasagna Day. Uh And we're going to have a chef here to teach us how to eat it. (laughs) Because we don't need to learn how to make it if somebody's here doing that. We just can... Eat it. The proof is in the eating. Absolutely. And we're going to have a great time. Hey, we are very thrilled to welcome to our show a musical artist who burst on the music scene when he was only 16 years old. I mean, he had a huge smash hit that many of us remember. Pretty unforgettable song, It'sy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. But since then, he has enjoyed a very long career and many hits. Things like Gypsy Woman which sold over a million copies, and a familiar ballad that, how do you not love this one, sealed with a kiss. Would you please give a warm welcome to the one and only Brian Hyland. Brian, you know, I used to play your songs when I was a disc jockey on the radio station. Uh, you know, if it hadn't been for guys like you making music, I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have had a job. So thank you. And You're thanks welcome. for being here. You're welcome. What is the background of the song, Sealed With a Kiss? Because there's always interesting little twists behind the music.
6: The, uh, I recently reconnected with the, uh, the lyricist on Sealed With a Kiss named Peter Udell. And he told me the story that uh, there was the other writer that wrote the melodies, Gary. Uh, he kept bugging him uh-huh. about write a song called Swack, <laughs> like people put on envelopes. And yeah. he, he just kept on it. And so this one day he was uh, sitting there in his apartment writing a song. And he, says, he said it one more time. He says, then he got down on his knees. He says, <laughs> please write a song called Swack. <laughs> and so he, he gave in and he, so he got up, he, walk, he walked over, he walked over to the window and he looked out Central Park. And all of a sudden this came to him and he said, though we gotta say goodbye for the summer, darling, I promise you this, I'll send you all my love every day in a letter sealed with a kiss. Wow. And he had the whole first verse just like that. I think it turned out pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> it did.
1: You know, I was laughing this afternoon. Keith and I were talking about Itsy Bitsy, uh, Teeny Weeny, Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. That was a scandalous song in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> did, did people say, now, Brian, you shouldn't be singing stuff like that?
6: Well, at first, when the when that came out, the uh, the writers were called into the record company, and he was the president of the company was a little worried about that. And then they told him the story that Paul Vance, who was the lyricist on that song, he uh, was watching his little daughter, who was three years old, wearing a bathing suit for the first time down at Jones Beach (laughs) in Long Island. And he got that idea.
1: So it really is about a two-year-old girl, huh? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) No one ever knew that before, I can tell you. You know, it's funny because and one of the things we were laughing about was that the bikini of that era, the one that sort of went along with it, is now way more modest than what most girls would wear at a church camp swimming pool. (laughs) So, I mean, it's like, boy, have we ever come full circle. You're still on the road, still making music. I mean, you know, a lot of people have said, Brian, when are you going to retire? Obviously, you're not.
6: No. I I worked uh, up in uh, Branson, Missouri, with uh, the group, The Comets, Bill Haley's yeah, band. Yeah. And they said that, uh, I asked them, and they said, we're going to rock till we drop. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love that.
1: But you still love this, don't you?
6: Yes, I do.
1: You know what? And, and because you do, it's very easy for the audiences to love you back because you're still bringing back so many phenomenal memories for everyone who hears the songs of Brian Hyland. You know, I kind of think that maybe we ought to do one of your songs while you're here. Don't you think that'd be a good idea? It's a great idea. I think it is. All right. So while Brian gets ready to perform,
0: Keith Bilbrey is gonna tell you how you can hear all of the music, the great music of Brian Hyland. Keith, take it away. To find all of Brian's music, tour dates and more, visit Huckabee.tv and go there after the show for a digital exclusive performance of Sealed With A Kiss. Now, cover your eyes performing itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini with Trey and the band and Mike on bass. Here's Brian Hyland!
7: She was afraid to come out of a locker She was as nervous as she could be She was afraid to come out of a locker the bread that somebody would say. Two, three, four, tell the people what she wore. It was an itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny yellow polka dot bikini that she wore for the first time a day. And itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny yellow polka dot bikini so in the locker she wanted to stay. Two, three, four, cigarette will tell you more. She was afraid to come out in the open And so a blank around her she wore She was afraid to come out in the open And so she sat bundled up on the shore Two, three, four, tell the people what she wore It was an itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, elbow bikini That she wore for the first time today. day Bitsy, bitchy, teeny weeny Yellow polka dot bikini So in the blanket she wanted to stay One, Two, three, four, stick around, we'll tell you more Now she's afraid to come out of the water And I wonder what she's gonna do Now she's afraid to come out of the water And the pool Tell the people what she wore. It was an itchy, itchy, teeny, weeny Yellow polka dot bikini That she wore for the first time a day An she itchy, teeny, weeny Yellow polka dot bikini So in the water she wanted to stay From the locker to the blanket From the blanket to the shore from the shore to the water, guess there isn't anymore.